This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends and technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the intersection of innovation and marketing. We'll talk about why marketing touches more areas of a business than ever before, why looks matter when it comes to marketing, and how to go about reverse engineering your company's social media strategy. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Dr. Lee George. Dr. George is the founder and CEO of Freedom, where she helps organizations that feel stuck clear the way for innovation. She was previously the Director of Marketing and Communications at URAC, the VP of Social at Ogilvy, and the Director of Strategy at R2 Integrated. Dr. George is one of the few people in the country with a PhD in Branding History and Theory, which she earned from Binghamton University. You can learn more about her new company and about Dr. George at findfreedom.co. And you can follow her on Twitter at at Lee George. That's L-E-I-G-H. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about a premise that you put forward on your company's website, that marketing touches more parts of a company now than ever before. What are some of the forces at play that make that the case? So I think what's happened is um, that marketers traditionally um, really were responsible for managing the the brand, and now it's shifted, or, or sort of just the marketing for the brand, um, you know, the brand identity, those sorts of things. And now it's really shifted from that more limited scope um, to really a more much broader scope of of really managing the brand experience. And whereas before organizations um, and the departments were within them were very siloed. So marketing had had, you know, its own sort of territory, communications had its own, IT had its own, HR had its own. With new technologies, first the internet, then social media, the lines between them began to, to bleed. And so when you think about the brand experience, that cuts across uh, communications, customer service, HR, IT. And so it makes it very difficult. So now all of these different groups that you know had separate budgets, had separate management, now really marketing has to work across them. Sales is another area. Uh, and so I think that's where the, the, the real shift has come. And I think that's where marketers are feeling really stuck because uh, they're having a hard time kind of trying to do new things within these traditional ways of working, both internally and with the agencies that they've been working with. Okay, nice. And, and let me ask you about looks. The visual web is a concept you've given talks on in the past. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the visual web and why looks matter so much when it comes to marketing? Sure. So I think, um, you know, it all sort of started, this notion of the visual web can be traced back to the introduction of the cell phone which for the first time we had this device that wasn't really a phone, but it allowed us to take pictures and then with social platforms share them immediately in a way that we never were able to do before. And so what ended up happening is 
that uh, platforms responded to that ability that were much more visual. So you had YouTube, you had Instagram, you have, um, you know, kind of the Twitter version of, of YouTube with Viddy and other video platforms. And so you suddenly, um, mobile phones enabled this explosion of visual content. And I think visual content really uh, kind of exploded on the scene because it's so easy to produce, right? And within mm-hmm. a click, you can share it, you can take it and share it. And also just in terms of the way the brain works, we can process visual information a lot faster. It's much more emotionally resonant than you know reading something. Typically in writing, you have to kind of build up to kind of reach an emotional um, point, but with images, you can, you can get to that point much faster. Yeah, it's fascinating that you say that. In one of your presentations on SlideShare, you cite some stats from a HubSpot article titled 19 Fascinating Statistics That Make the Case for Using Visual Content in Your Marketing. And they include that 46% of people say a website's design is the number one criterion for discerning the credibility of a company. 90% of information transmitted to the brain is visual. And visuals are processed 60,000 times faster in the brain than text. So how can companies reconcile this with the need to fundamentally explain what they do and how they do it? Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of, that assumes that you need kind of a textual-based language to to explain your business. Mm -hmm. And really what we're seeing is using um, storyboarding uh, type of tactics like infographics as a way to explain uh, a very complex, say, IT offering um, in a way that's that that a customer or a client can understand very quickly and then act upon. Because really, none of us have time to read pages of dense text about the technical specifications of a product, right? And that's not we buy on an emotional basis. We don't buy, you know. At the end of the day, I don't care what market you're looking at; it's all the same. Right. And so, I think images whatever form they take. It could be video, it could be infographics, other kinds of graphics, pictures, illustrations, photography. It's a way to connect emotionally very quickly and get, you know, because all you're trying to do with the website is get people interested enough to ask for more information. So visuals are a great way for you to uh, tell your story in a highly emotional, engaging, storytelling way to get people to reach out to you for more. Yeah. So we like to think that we're rational human beings, I know, but I know. more often than not, we're <laughs> emotional human beings. That's that's exactly right. I think it, the buying process starts off rationally, right? We're collecting information, we're comparing contrasting features and those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, when we buy, it doesn't matter if it's a shirt or you know a, a really complex um, professional services offering, it's done on motion. Right. You and, know what? And yeah, how it makes you feel. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's move from emotion to 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 the rational state of things and talk about measurement. So measurement is one of the hardest things to get right in the world of modern marketing. Nowhere is this more true than in the world of social media. In one of your presentations from your days at R2 Integrated, you recommend engineering social in reverse. You talk a little bit about that process. Can you walk listeners through how they might reverse engineer their company's social media strategies? Sure. So I think when people think about measurement, they think of it as something that comes at the end. You know, we'll do all of this work, we'll we'll put something in market, and then we'll measure at the end, um, and that it, it it comes after everything. And really, that's the worst thing you could do because what are you measuring then? 
Um, if you don't start with a clear sense of who you're trying to reach, what your goals are, and a plan for measuring those goals, then um, nothing that you put into market is, is going to be measurable. So measurement takes place uh, throughout the planning and market process. So you think about at the beginning, you're really putting together, as you're planning out your strategy, you're thinking about what who, who your audiences are, what your goals are, and then what are the key performance indicators you're using to measure that and putting that plan in place. And then as you... Um, as things go into market, you're measuring all along the way so that you can optimize. So it's not, it's this, it's a fluid sort of ongoing feedback loop process. It's not a kind of linear one that has an end where, you know, measurement is kind of the, the end of the process. Okay. So sticking with social media, Twitter has been in the news a lot recently, first for handing the marketing reins over to their CFO and more recently for their CEO, Dick Costello, stepping down. Much of the coverage on the CFO move was less than favorable, and reviews of Costello's tenure were mixed. What do you think all the changes at the C-level tell us about what's really happening inside Twitter? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think almost the entire management team has been replaced. And so what that says to me is that there's a lack of vision um, in terms of kind of what they want to do. Um, it's it's almost like... Um, this very short-sighted view of their business where they put someone in charge and if they don't generate the business results that the shareholders demand, well, we'll just change them out. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm, it's, it's interesting. I don't know what's really going on. I don't feel like they have a clear kind of brand and mission and vision for what, how to position themselves. I, I feel like it's more of a they're just they're struggling to figure out their business model and how they're gonna you know meet revenue goals. Yeah, and so kind of like everybody else, seemingly it looks like they're turning to advertising as one way maybe to make money. Right, and I think too they've been criticized a lot um, for saying you know we've got this huge user base, but not really being so forthright about the fact of how many of those users actually participate. So for mm-hmm. example. If you're a user on, if you have an account on Twitter but you don't use it, then how good are you to an advertiser? So what is the true audience that or reach that an advertiser might have? So I think um, because people expect with digital that you can get, you know, unlike a magazine or a newspaper where really people are satisfied with just like, oh, what's your subscription base? Right. And that's and then they don't ask any more questions. Um, they don't do that online. They don't say what's your subscription base and then be satisfied with that. They want to know, you know, really who, how many active users do you have? What are they doing? Um, they want lots and lots and lots of data. And I think, um, you know, it just seems like Twitter is sort of struggling there. Yeah. So speaking of advertising, John Wanamaker famously said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. So I know that marketing and advertising are far from the same thing. But do you think we're getting to a point in time with marketing where that isn't necessarily the case? Well, it's funny. I feel like marketing is becoming more like advertising in terms of um, it. Both both of them sort of come down to selling, and I think you know people are realizing, especially um, with social media, where people have the ability to go online and complain and, and talk about brands that 
we, I mean, we never have, but particularly now, we don't want to be sold to. We don't want to be marketed to. I mean, that's, that's an interruption. When I'm consuming media, I go there for the media. I don't, I don't want an advertisement. Um, or if I'm, you know, driving down the road, a billboard is an interruption. And so I think uh, content marketing is yet another way to advertise and market without looking like you're selling. But at the end of the day, we know we're being sold to. So I think, you know, what's really missing is this notion of creating human interactions because we don't want to feel like a data point. We don't want these dehumanized experiences. We want something that, you know, is an experience that enriches our life. And I think that's something where brands could take real advantage of. And really, I think there's a, there's a real recognition among certain brands that, you know, we, we can't sell. We have to be partners with, with customers. So you've got brands like, I think brands that are doing this well, like Starbucks or Coca-Cola, where they give consumers a way to become personally involved with their brands. The Share a Coke campaign or the, you know, Send a Starbucks campaign. Dunkin' Donuts did this with its own advertising by having um, user-generated content featured in their advertising campaigns so that we don't feel, so we feel like we're part of the brand experience as opposed to the target of it. Um, and I think that that's, that, that people, especially, this is something that's especially true of millennials, is that they want to have an experience. They don't want to be sold to. They want it to be personalized. They want it to be unique. They want to be able to customize it. Um, all of those things, I think, are really, are forces that will only grow to reshape marketing and advertising as we know it. Do you ever feel like the kind of new media properties or platforms aren't learning the lessons that maybe their predecessors did? So with TV, for example, we've seen a massive move to time-shifted viewing and DVR. And with radio, I don't know for sure, but I imagine we're seeing massive moves away from quote-unquote terrestrial radio to podcasts and things like Sirius XM. You and I talked a little bit before we got started about how disruptive the ad experience is on Instagram when you come across a sponsored post and also about how negative a lot of the comments are. So there's like a tension between like, obviously these companies need to make money. Right. Um, but it seems like there has to be a better way than just like advertising. Well, what's really fascinating to me is this notion of, our notions of media are so conventional. We haven't challenged them. So when you look at the, you know, how social media, um, uh, it, it sort of, um, allowed brands to think that they could be publishers because they thought, oh, we own this platform. We can now build a community and market directly to it without advertising. They soon realized that that was not the case and that social media is as pay-to-play as anywhere else. But then suddenly people, brands said, well, why do I need to pay for media or earn media? Why can't I just be the media? And so I think they thought of becoming the media as a way to avoid advertising, which in conventional conceptions of media, that's the only way media makes money, right? Is right. through advertising. So, and brands will say, oh yes, we started this media company in the hopes that third parties will advertise on our media platforms. And so it's almost like this kind of dog chasing its tail and no one is thinking of kind of new ways to create experiences that don't have some interruptive aspect in them. Because as you said, you know, when, when I'm on my phone and I'm reading the Washington Post, I don't want or on a website, on a, on a desktop for that matter, 
I don't want some box to pop up and flash and, and you know, sound to come on. That's, right. that's not why I'm there. And I get really irritated. And it only reflects poorly on the media company, whether that's a brand or a, or a you know, traditional notion of a publisher. And so what I find really fascinating is people think they're being really innovative or brands think they're being really innovative by becoming media companies. But really, they're just... Um, they're not kind of creating any sort of new experiences or models for interaction and engagement with consumers that avoid the problem of advertising. Right. So I think there's a huge opportunity for brands to do something really innovative and different as opposed to just trying to replicate models that have been around since the beginning of, of media in the early 20th century. Yeah. So one of the hard but exciting things about the marketing space is that the ground is constantly shifting. So as soon as you master one new service or platform, another one pops up. What are some of the core marketing tools you've seen clients use to great effect that you would say are absolute musts for any company or marketing organization to master? So I think, you know, it's interesting. This is something where I feel like brands slip up a lot. They approach marketing kind of tool first. And so they become obsessed with the tactics as opposed to looking at who they're trying to reach and what they're trying to do and then figure out the tools they need. And so you never want your marketing to be led by tools because then the tools kind of dictate what you do. So for example, for a long time, everyone was obsessed with Facebook likes and shares and re, you know Twitter retweets. That, those, that data tells you nothing about how you are reaching your business goals. It doesn't tell you anything about how many widgets you've sold or how far along um, you know, a B2B prospect is through the sales funnel. All it does is reflect back on the platform itself. Mm-hmm. They're what I call self-referential metrics. Right. And so if, you, if your strategy or what you're doing in marketing relies on the tools, you'll be kind of caught within the the logics of that, of that platform. However, if you start first with what you're trying to do, who you're trying to reach, and then think about what are the tactics and the tools I need to do that, then that allows you to strategically pick what tools make the most sense given what your goals are. Okay, nice. And, and this may be sacrilege given your answer to that last question, but we <laughs> talked uh, in the run-up to the podcast about a service called This are there companies or service providers or platforms out there that you think are doing highly innovative things that people should keep an eye on? So, you know, we talked a bit before about brands becoming publishers. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that, I think within kind of my industry, that's where a lot of the buzz is. And so you've got brands like Red Bull, Marriott is another big one, Coca-Cola, um, Casper is one that's interesting. So I don't know if you know of them. They I don't. So um, kind of following uh, brands like Uber and Airbnb, they are trying to hack the mattress space and the way that we buy mattresses. So they offer Tempur-Pedic-like quality mattresses at a far more affordable price. And um, they just launched an online publication that focuses on all aspects of sleep. Mm -hmm. And they've actually hired um, journalists away from some of the leading um, uh, traditional media companies to write for them. So it's not, it's, it's branded content, 
but they're not um, managing the the um, editorial policy of the magazine at all. It's considered to be kind of a standalone entity. So that received a lot of press um, within sort of the content marketing world. Um, so what they're essentially doing is instead of, in the past, media would represent a lifestyle and then brands would advertise because they associated themselves with that lifestyle. Now they're sort of trying to flip it and say, no, 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 we are the lifestyle and we are going to um, you know, create this lifestyle across all these media properties. So if you look at Red Bull, it's not just an online publication. It's film, it's games, it's um, all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me ask you about the company you recently started, Lee. It's called Freedom, and I talked a bit about it in the introduction. What is the company's mission, and where can interested listeners learn more about the company? Sure. So it was inspired um, by the fact that I saw, you know, this kind of goes back to what we were first talking about in terms of marketers owning the brand experience and feeling stuck. Um, and so the desire uh, that, that I have for the company is to really help marketers that feel stuck, help them um, remove barriers so that they can think in new ways and really innovate around the brand experience. So that could be in um, rebranding themselves, that could be in developing a digital marketing strategy, could be in a new developing a new product or service, it could be in helping them figure out what capabilities do they need in-house versus, you know, at what point do they need to bring an agency in. So um, the way I sort of position myself and, and differentiate myself from traditional agencies um, that uh, are cost um, based on kind of a, uh, an hourly uh, fee mm-hmm. that kind of come to you with a set of services, which I kind of view as solutions in search of a problem, that my approach is much more bespoke. I want to start with your, your problem, your frustration, almost kind of diagnose what's, what's really the issue here. Is it that you need a new website or is it that you don't know who your audience is and we need to do some research around that and then really develop a custom solution based on what that client needs? Okay, and as I mentioned in the intro, you're one of the few people in the country with a PhD in branding history and theory. So what does a PhD in branding history and theory entail? That's a great question. So I um, went to a very unusual graduate program, I should say. Um, I think to most people it would look like an art history, a traditional art history program, but instead of, it was actually not called art history, it was called visual culture. Mm -hmm. So you could study not just fine art, but any sort of visual cultural production, uh, which I liked because at that point I had studied art history kind of since high school and I felt like it was a little elitist. It's not really relevant to most people in the world today. But what is really relevant is design, visual design. And so in looking at that, I became interested in branding and total identity programs um, and wrote a dissertation about it and now have a PhD. Very nice. Uh, and yeah, I feel like I don't, I'm not going to recall the exact stat, but it was something like humans come or uh, Americans, I think it was come across 2000 brand messages over the course of a day or something right, like right, that. Right. So I guess obviously it's very important for you know any company out there that wants to have a positive association with their brand to be doing the visual aspect of it well. Right. Exactly. Okay. And let's, let's talk about one more sense, the sense of hearing, If the old (laughs) adage that variety is the spice of life is true, you have that covered in spades on the Find Freedom Spotify list. 
Uh, Freedom is the name of Lee's company. And the Spotify list includes classic tunes from the likes of George Michael, Diana Ross, The Spice Girls, Judy Garland, Kanye West, and Ariana Grande, among others. So, Lee, where do you get your eclectic musical tastes? So, the reason I wanted to create a Spotify list for my company is that yeah, I'm a real, uh, I'm very passionate about brand experience, that it's not just your marketing, but it's a whole sensory experience that you create from the way someone answers the phone to the clothes they wear to what your office looks like. It's visual. Uh, it can also be auditory. And I think that's a, that's a dimension that most people don't think about. Um, and so I wanted to um, create a list that would reflect the brand and the brand personality uh, in, a, in a sort of auditory way. Um, and I, you know, I picked songs that all had something to do with the freedom theme. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, I have, I consider myself a kind of very Baroque person. I like kind of extremes. I love kitsch. I love excess. Um, I think when you think of freedom, that's a, that's a very large concept, um, kind of larger than life concept. Um, and so in general, I was trying to pick things, um, uh, it's it's based it's also based on my musical taste. I mean, you you don't, for example, there's no Pearl Jam song there. There's no Stone Temple Pilots. Right. There's like there's whole musical genres that aren't there. But I tend to like more kind of dance music, disco, pop. But I also love classics. So you've got Judy Garland, um, just because of the sheer technical virtuosity of their voices. Love Frank Sinatra, Mel Torme, all of those people. Um, so that's sort of what, what uh, how, how that list came together. Nice. Well, we think about the auditory dimension a lot here at the Innovation Engine podcast. Right, uh, and exactly. can certainly appreciate a good playlist on Spotify. Great, great. Um, well, Lee, thanks so much for coming in today. Lee's in studio with us. It was great talking with you about the intersection of innovation and marketing. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lee George... You can visit her company's website at www.findfreedom.co and you can follow her on Twitter at at Lee George. That's L-E-I-G-H. Thanks once again to Lee George for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. The Innovation Engine will be on summer vacation next week. We're taking the week leading up to July 4th off, which means we won't have an episode coming your way on July 6th. You can catch us again the following Monday, July 13th, when we're pleased to have Dr. Fred Keel on the podcast to talk about his book, Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win. We'll talk about the research study of 84 CEOs that formed the foundation for Dr. Keel's book, why the character of a company's leaders impacts its bottom line more than you might think, and how to evaluate your own character and adjust it accordingly. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www dot three pillar global dot com.